Today, let's finish up admitting we will never finish what we still must start for a new start. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. That's a lot of finishing and starting. And uh, to be honest, I am going to have to run through this material uh, in order to finish the discussion that we began the other day about forgiveness and judgment, how they fit together, what we're supposed to do about it, and the different aspects that are involved, the different perspectives that are involved, and the different elements that are involved uh, in dealing with it. So what we need to arrive at today uh, is a discussion for the benefit of the offended. We, we, have, we have spent two episodes already uh, breaking down some of the basic concepts, and then the second episode speaking to the offender. And I don't mean pointing out an offender and speaking to them about what they need to do. I mean having the episode focused on uh, how we consider these issues from the perspective of the offender. What, what that person needs to take into consideration or what we need to think about regarding that person. Uh, so the offender, we've covered that. We want to get to the offended today. And in the, in the discussion, and this is what we've been talking about, and the discussion aimed at what issues of repentance mean to the offender, we need to get to the point today where we're talking to the offended about how we're going to do that. So we've made the point that the offender has to give up control of the circumstance, that 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 this is just the reality of being an offender, that, that, that when we're the offender, and, and we have to remember, it's not us always being offended and someone else uh, always having committed the offense. Sometimes we're the offender, sometimes we're the offended. Sometimes we're just the community within which it happened. Sometimes we're an advocate. Sometimes we're an advocate on the wrong side, and so on. So anyway, so when we're the offender, we don't get to control the offended person. We exercised too much control over the offended person when we created the offense, right? But we don't have the prerogative of determining how they respond to that offense. So that that's the first part. And then the second part about the offender was that they're dependent on mercy. We are dependent on mercy when we're an offender. Uh, but we're not able to demand it. That's the nature of mercy, by the way. That, by definition, makes it mercy, that we don't have a right to demand it. So we've given up all control when we're the offender. And by the way, all of these things, all of these ideas are premised on the idea that we have to distinguish between these three distinct, uh, although interrelated, aspects of the offense. Uh, repentance and forgiveness, all of those elements that are involved, they involve the character of the offender. Remember we talked about, so the need for affirmation, the debt to self that's involved. It involves also the loss to the offended, hence the need for restitution, so debt uh, to the victim that's present, the, 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 the survivor that's present, or the offended, depending on you know what the offense is. 
And then the difference between, we talked about the difference between property crime and crime against a person, abuse and violence, and how to provide restitution for something. I mean, for instance, if you're providing restitution for a property crime, okay, you talk about four sheep for one, that kind of thing we read about. But how on earth are you supposed to provide restitution for something a survivor can never get back in these cases of abuse that we've talked about? And even in in the cases of property uh, uh, property crimes, you still have an offense that can't be taken back. Remember how, and surely you've had these encounters with people who've had their apartment or home broken into or a car broken into, and they say, I lost my safe place. I thought I had a safe place. There's an abuse against the person that also happens when you think of it as only a property crime. And the same would happen with white collar types of crimes, having your bank account emptied by someone or whatever. It, it robs you of a sense of security and stability that you thought you had before. How do you restore that? So we'll come back to that. Anyway, you can see how all of that affects what needs to go into the conversation we're going to have with the offended, with the person who's been violated in some way. Anyway, so we have the character of the offender we're talking about, the loss of the offended, and then also the rejection of authority and therefore the need for punishment or atonement in a positive sense, atonement or even restoration, which we'll talk about at the end of today. That's the point to get to today. And and also the fact that there's a debt to society. So in those three cases we were talking about, the character of the offender, the loss of the offended, and the rejection of authority, what you have is a debt to the self, a debt to the survivor or the victim or however you want to characterize that, again, depending on the offense, and then the debt to society or the debt to God, as it turns out. And as we talk about all three of the contexts that are involved in the issues surrounding repentance, we have to understand how our relationship with the offender works. This is what we have to come to first today, which means we have to start with the social context, the community within which the offense occurred and its repercussions would be experienced. And, And the reason we have to start with the social context or the community is because, first of all, That's what gives us leverage uh, or influence. Leverage might not be the right word there, but you get the idea. Sometimes it is the right word, but it gives us influence or leverage with the offender, but also because there's more to consider, you know, for an offended person as they're thinking about how do I respond to this person who says, I'm sorry? How do I respond to this person who says, I won't ever do it again? There's more to consider than simply the offender or even simply how they offended me, because the society and the community are also involved in what's taken place. So talking about the community, we could spend all day for a month talking about the community. I love doing that. We've had several episodes where we've talked about the relationship between individuals and the community. So I'm just going to hit on two main points here, or three, (laughs) before we jump into talking to the offended person about how you respond when someone has offended you and then they say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. I repent. And I'm, and again, in all three of these episodes, which could easily have been four or five episodes, in all three of these episodes, the, the object has been to acknowledge from the beginning that we're not going to say, well, here, take these three steps and you solve the problem. We're acknowledging that when we understand the whole context within which all of this takes place, we can act in a more informed way and a better way to be peacemakers. But there is not, on one hand, there's not a single right solution to it. 
on another hand, there is no solution that's perfect because what has happened is wrong. And there are going to be residual effects of that wrong. And if you say, well, not in Christianity, we, we can fix this problem, then you just don't understand the fall. You would say to God, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, well, why didn't you just make that right? And why isn't it all just fixed now? Do you understand that the residual problems of our failings are permanent? They are here until Christ returns and makes all things right. So, of course, there are going to be residual effects that are still left. Anyway, we'll get get to all of that in a moment. So in the context of the community and what we need to deal with, number one is, is a weird thing going on in, in, in a discussion I used to think of solely as the relationship between transparency and shame. And so, I, you know, it, it's changed. I, I'm coming up on 60 years, and I, uh, I've, I have learned that people see the world differently as time goes by. They start to see the world differently, and there are generational differences right now in how people are interacting with the world in terms of their own faults. And sometimes those are persistent faults, and sometimes they're just mistakes that people make in a, in a moment. But the differences are huge, and they're apparent in a, a, a sliding, uh, an insulting term, that older people, <laughs> I can, I, I'm in this category. I mean, I'm not laughing because I'm in the category. I'm laughing because of how many people are so much younger than I am who put themselves in this category by doing this. They refer to younger people as snowflakes. They will use that term. You've heard the term before, surely. You know, because snowflakes are so delicate and light. And, oh, these these kids, they just can't take anything. I mean, if you serve them the wrong food, they file a lawsuit of offense against you or whatever. That kind of statement, oh, what a snowflake this person is, is related very significantly, for instance, to the idea that comes into uh, cases of trauma and abuse that are related to where we use the term triggers. And so people will talk about triggers, and they'll say, uh, and and if if you're in social media, you see this all the time, trigger warning, you you know, trauma description or abuse description or something like that, or descriptions of this kind of offense or that kind of offense. And they will say that because uh, for a lot of younger people especially, and maybe it should go beyond this, but this is where I see it, for a lot of younger people especially, there is a sense that if certain words are used or if certain experiences are described, that it triggers a reaction that's related to trauma for them. And so it it's sort of a, and I, I again, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a, I, I don't do things like this for a living, but it is sort of obviously related to the idea of post-traumatic stress of some kind, that, that you're being drawn back into the experience that brought you so much trauma before. And so triggers and warnings are part of the reason that people who are older and more curmudgeonly, like me, will have a, te- and I don't, I don't use this term about people. I find it insulting and derogatory and unnecessarily dismissive of things that are going on, as I'll describe in just a moment, but they'll use the term snowflakes. Oh, there's such a snowflake, you have to give a trigger warning if you're going to use the word red because, you know, there's blood that's red and somehow they got cut and blah, blah, blah. Well, here's the thing. When you provide triggers and warnings, when you provide warnings about triggers, right, so I'm going to use some word that might be offensive to someone, you might feel like you're simply, uh, you know, coddling someone who ought to be tougher, you know, if they would just toughen up and toughen their skin and so on. But triggers and the warnings that go with them are related to a sense of injustice among that generation 
about things that we, in my generation, consider normative. Like, so for instance, a lot of times now, younger people, and I, I say a lot of times, I know several cases, and so I'm, this is anecdotal, but I, I just cannot imagine this doesn't expand to others. But it's, it's a good example of this, that people will describe someone who's their boss, literally their employer, giving them commands and directions about what they have to do or correcting them for what they did wrong, they will describe that as bullying. Now, don't get me wrong. Bosses can be bullies, no doubt about it. A uh, lot Anybody can be a bully if they want to act in certain ways. There is a certain amount in my generation of assumption that your boss gets to bully you. Not in the belittling sense, but in the sense that they get to, if they don't like your work, then you, you need to do your work better. And if they speak something that makes you feel bad, well, then you ought to try harder to make them not feel disappointed in your work, you know, that kind of thing. And so when we hear a younger person say, well, my boss is bullying me because they're telling me I have to do this and that, then you get that reaction that makes people say, oh, well, they're a bunch of snowflakes. They ought to toughen up. In my day, my boss would use the buckle end of the belt to whip you into shape, you know, that kind of thing. Well, so let me give you a counter consideration if you're my age, if, you, if you're like me, and you, and you look back on that and you're like, well, they ought to just toughen up. In truth, every generation, think about this with me. Don't, don't, don't tune me out on this yet. <laughs> yet. Every generation, and, or, or maybe it's just in better contexts, if you move someone to a better context, fine, expects more more justice, more righteousness, more whatever than the previous. That's normal, right? This, we want the world to be a better place for the next generation than it was for the previous generation. And we think to ourselves, well, I got through the gauntlet. You know, my dad hit me with a belt buckle. My dad never did that. He wouldn't do that. But somebody's saying, uh, you know, my dad hit me with a belt buckle and I turned out okay. Well, truthfully, I'm not sure you did turn out okay to begin with. That's number one. The number two, that doesn't mean that's the best way to get there. And it doesn't mean that the next generation has to put up with the same kind of abuse that we put up with. And so the point in my counter consideration, I'm saying, like, like, let me give you an example. The difference between the great generation, right? So we're willing to throw our soldiers at the beaches of Normandy for a horrific loss, tens of thousands of lives, but knowing that they could get a toehold on Europe and that we could... Uh, take down this Nazi regime, you know, and so on. That is truly a heroic, transformative moment in history, no doubt about it. This generation, abs and I don't mean from below, I mean in the way we govern and practice the military now. We wouldn't be willing to risk tens of thousands of lives, knowing that most are going to die before they even get their feet on the soil, just at that one beach. Omaha Beach, and then planning to win on the sheer volume of the people that we're willing to sacrifice at that beach to gain a toehold. We wouldn't be willing to do that today. And I think part, and you can say, well, we're just not as tough as they used to be. Maybe. Or maybe we're more aware of injustices, of what brings suffering, of what makes, you know, things wrong, what's been lost in the past, as times and as time moves forward, 
seeing that. And, and the Vietnam War is a good example of that. The racial things uh, that were present in the Viet- Vietnam War and some of the motivations at the top of American government in the Vietnam War make us aware of that. Does that just make us weaker or does it make us more aware of injustices that ought to be dealt with? This is just part of the reality of the world. So for people my age, I would suggest that it means tempering our judgment of the generations which come after us. They're often right that we, my generation, are simply unaware of how wrong we've been. If we can't learn from the next generation, and I'm not saying they're right about everything, but they can be right. And in those things where they're right, that we were just insensitive, that we had leathered over, calloused over areas where we should have been aware of what was right and what was wrong and weren't, then we should be willing to listen to them. And so in that context, this is the point that I want to make. We're now dealing with a younger generation that's much more therapeutically minded in our culture. They're willing to go to a counselor. They have a therapist. They have someone they deal with. I, I, I was surprised the first few times I encountered this, that I would be speaking with someone and they would say, well, you know, when I was talking with this about my, uh, with, with my therapist about this, why'd you come to me? I thought you were coming to me so you could get advice. They are coming to me for advice, but they have a therapist who helps them psychologically, helps them emotionally deal with the things that are going on in their life. It, it took me aback. And then I've realized that this is fairly common in today's culture for people to do this. Many, and a lot of students, and I'm saying it about students because that's who I encounter. You know, I'm the president of Criswell College and I, I still act as a professor here and interact with students here. So many students grow up thinking that having a therapist isn't just normal, it's normative. You ought to. There are things that you ought to be dealing with that, you know, you old guys like me, they wouldn't say this, but, you know, it's present. You guys never dealt with this. You guys hid it your whole lives, and so you've learned to be good repressors or suppressors of things. And I don't want to be that. I want to be more transparent. See, we're back to the topic I was bringing up at the beginning of transparency and shame. And so for many, the idea that we suppress or repress anything is a primary problem in our society. Now, uh, think about what that means. And this is one way of saying it. There's there's an important chasm between contrition that becomes confession, right? So I'm, oh, I've been doing this terrible thing and, and therefore I need to tell someone about it and make it right. You know, I need, I, need, I need to get it off my chest, right? So contrition become confession. And then confession becoming callousness or even comfort. Oh yeah, I talk about it all the time now. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I've, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've been uh, abusing uh, this person over here and, and that's just part of my life. And I, I go to a therapist for it and I'm, I'm trying to get that under control, you know, or I, I have anger issues and I've, I'm talking to a therapist about it. Or uh, as I've had students or others speak to me about uh, many times, well, yeah, I have a problem with pornography, but I'm seeing a therapist about it. And it's something that I speak about freely. And, you know, for people in my generation, it's like, well, you just go around telling people that? I mean, uh, why is that? We think about it differently. That difference is actually important for what it reveals about how we take the seriousness of what we're doing, and we see it differently in different generations. That's the point I'm making right now. So even the way I said it here, that there's an important chasm between contrition become confession and confession become callousness, 
even that statement is prejudiced by my own place in the generational spectrum. You can tell. Contrition ought to become confession. But if you confess so much that you become calloused to the issue, I'm presuming that continuing to talk about it builds calluses over your taking it seriously. That's my generation's sort of myopia about this dilemma that people face. Younger people, generally, not everybody, not everybody fits the generational categories. I know that. Younger people speak openly about things that make my generation blush, not necessarily because they're preoccupied with wickedness, this evil generation. Go back and read Solomon. Every older generation thinks the next generation is going to bring the apocalypse. It's not because of that, but because they believe that not being willing to talk about things actually makes them worse. And come on, that's true. In a lot of ways, that's true. But it leads to this dilemma that I'm trying to get to. Since shame, you know, which makes us want to bury things, used to be a common tool for influencing behavior. Discussion and transparency not only confronts us with things and forces us to deal with them, but it also can desensitize us to them. And in some ways, deliberately, hey, this should be up on the table and we should be willing to talk about it. But, you know, keeping it on the table for long enough makes it something you don't even notice. Oh, yeah, well, that's true. We have a frog on the table, but go ahead and eat your dinner. Well, don't you think we should talk about the frog on the table? Yeah, and if you talk about it every day, it's still there. You know, nothing's happening with it. You just get used to it. Yeah, there's a frog on the table. Yeah, yeah, we, that's how we eat our meals, with a frog on the table. So transparency, is what I'm saying here is, transparency is all obviously good because it brings things out in the open so we can deal with them. But having things out in the open can also make us feel like we don't need to do anything else to deal with them. Well, it's out in the open. I guess I don't need to do anything about it. And, and my, my dilemma particularly, you know, comes to a head when therapy itself becomes part of a pattern of behavior. And I don't think this is common. I'm not saying this happens to everybody, and I'm not criticizing therapy. I think that's a great uh, tool. That's why we teach psychology at Criswell College. I, I love the idea. But I've dealt with addicts, and, and I know that in dealing with addicts, very often therapy or going to a counselor or even going to a clinic or checking yourself in at a place or whatever can become part of the, the regular cycle of behavior that maintains the addiction, which is perpetually frustrating to me. I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. And by the way, nobody else does. I don't mean that like nobody has solutions, but addiction is a huge problem uh, in our culture. Okay, so you get the idea that there's this dilemma between bringing things out in the open so that we can deal with them, but bringing them out in the open and becoming so comfortable with them that we just don't deal with them. And that becomes particularly important in terms of the community if you remember that self-esteem and honor, which we've talked about in previous episodes as key motivators in different cultures, self-esteem in cultures that are about the individual, and honor in cultures that are about the community first. Uh, the, there is a huge difference between those two communities, but those are but both of those elements are always present in the communities. And so, you know, in the in the societies where you're focused on the self 
and individualism and therefore self-esteem and societies where you're focused on the community and where you fit in and how you fulfill your role in them and so therefore focused on honor, there's a huge difference between what comes out in our culture as this, feeling good about being whatever we are. That's the one that focuses on self-esteem. Well, this is who I am, and so I want to be proud of that. I understand that. But there's a huge difference between that and feeling accountable to others to measure up where we may have failed. Now, surely you can hear in this conversation about repentance and forgiveness and judgment and punishment and restoration how important that issue is. The difference between a society, and in in our society, we have both of these elements present. A society where it's important that you feel good about who you really are, and yet a society in which you feel accountable to others to measure up where you may have failed. Those are not mutually exclusive, but they are combative with each other, at least, at a minimum. And so you can see that in a lot of different ways, and I don't have time to to dwell on this right now, but in in the way church discipline has changed, Uh, We don't, it just doesn't have the same effect it used to have. Again, I've had that conversation before in previous episodes, so you can go back and listen to some episodes about those issues, uh, and I would encourage you to do that. And it's present, you know, just think about the importance in our culture. This is why it's so important in our culture that we learn how, and I talked about this in a previous episode too, so I won't dwell on it, but how important it is that we choose a voluntary association. That's why your church is so important. Because even though it's voluntary, it's not like you have to be a member because you're born into this community. So it's voluntary. You come into it because you choose the faith, and you choose, therefore, to be baptized into this community of saints and so on. That choosing that voluntary association then creates an environment within which shame can be a tool for creating regret. I know that's weird in our culture to say. It doesn't sound normal at all. Shame? But I mean it not in the sense of destructive shame. Come, come stand here in front of everyone. Now, all of us, look, we're, everyone, wag your finger. Wag your finger at them and make them feel bad about what they've done. I don't mean that. I don't mean destructive shame. I don't mean destroying the individual or acting as if there is no importance to the private conscience of an individual standing up against the crowd and doing the right thing. Those are some of the most important lessons we learn in Christianity, that that one does have to stand by himself sometimes and go to the cross by himself to overturn the entire community. I get that, and, and I value that. But equally important is the reality that comes into the church, for instance, that when an offense happens, you can go to the church, and the church can say to them, you, you can't be a part of this congregation if you're going to behave that way. That kind of shame where you say, don't you want to be a part of this community? Didn't you want to be a part? And especially in our cultural context where it's a voluntary association. You joined the church. This is the uniform we put on. Do you want to wear it? The idea of being able to do this, use that pressure of the relationship of the community or or, or that just the relationship between two individuals, the offender and the offended, being able to use that relationship to bring about some kind of change in the priorities and ultimately in not just the behavior but the attitude and heart 
of the person that you're dealing with implies that it has to be non-destructive. And I can see why. I mean, this is particularly challenging. Uh, Daisy mentioned, I, I mentioned to you, the producer that, that I have uh, is a, a counselor, a licensed counselor. And, and when, uh, you know, when, when and I, I don't think she has to deal with this at all right now, but she was mentioning how, how, how great a challenge this is when you have someone assigned to you for therapy or in counseling who is assigned to you by requirement of, for instance, law. So you have a court-ordered client that comes. What do you use as leverage? What do you use as a point of influence so that they actually care about what you're saying? This is, this is part of the point I'm trying to make, that because we're in these voluntary associations, because we have relationships with people inside of a society or community, we're able to speak into their lives in a way that can actually say to them, you're, you're not measuring up. But saying that and acknowledging that, you know, we live in a culture where a person is supposed to be able to say, I don't care what you think of how I measure up. I'm confident in myself of how I measure up is a real challenge. There's a dilemma there. There's a problem. So you, learning how we're supposed to relate to others in an environment with both transparency but also shame, not so we can have a tool for destroying their personal conscience. And by the way, that conscience, that conscientiousness, brings a prophetic value to the community. You know, everybody's wagging their finger at the person. Sometimes they have to wag their finger back and say, no, you are out of order as the as the movie goes you know you're out of order and you're out of order and so on i don't even know which movie that's from if it's a bad movie i'm sorry i brought it up i, I seriously don't remember where it's from but you, you have to know what i'm talking about okay so anyway so using that as a context the community give me just a few minutes here to speak to the offended to us as the person who has been wronged or an advocate for the person who has been wronged. Because even though we use that common expression, you know, don't take up the, the you know, somebody else's cause, that's not true. Biblically, we are supposed to take up the cause of the victim. We are supposed to take up the cause of the defenseless, of those who are being led to death or whatever. So, you know, for the offended, I mean it in the broad sense of those who have been wronged in some way or us representing them. And first, let me just take into consideration the actual issue of being offended, because there is a there is a little subculture in Christianity that basically says, well, it shouldn't have any effect on you at all because you're higher than that. You know, you, you relate to Christ. It shouldn't bother you when things happen that would offend other people. Uh, I had this quoted to me ad nauseum from Psalm 119, 165. I've never forgotten it. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing shall offend them. Oh, you feel offended by what I do? Well, great peace have those who love their love God's law. Nothing offends them, so you must not be right with God. Now, of course, there's another translation to that. Nothing can make them stumble. That's the stone of stumbling or the stone of offense kind of idea, and that changes it. But even in that context, let me just give a back and forth on this real quickly to, to, to let it pass uh, so that we can move on to what actually matters here. It's that that argument is wrong in one sense. It's wrong to say that there will be no personal harm to those who love God's law or that there's no wrongdoing against those who love God's law. That's just completely wrong on the face of it based on all of the godly people in scripture who are thoroughly offended. 
uh, including Christ going to the cross on our behalf. So he's wronged when that happens. You can say, well, his father wanted him. His father took a wrong, an evil, which is described as evil by the people who perpetrated it. Anyway, you get the idea. So it's wrong to say you're not going to have any offenses against you. That's just not true. But it is right to say this, and this is the point of it, that because you are in love with God's law, you're grounded in eternal truth. And the circumstances that are offending you in a person or in the situation, whatever it is, they don't conquer you. And so you don't stumble. You don't completely collapse underneath it because you have your feet grounded. Even when the current is swiftly flowing against you, you have your feet firmly planted on this rock. And so you can stand there. So in that sense, it's right. But in another sense, it is taking that wrong the wrong idea, no harm's going to come to you, and making it right because you can develop in your love of God's law the ability, you can develop the solidity or the faithfulness to remain steadfast even in your attitude toward the offender, even though uh, you maintain the vulnerability to be harmed. So you can be offended, you can be harmed, and yet you're not knocked off of your stability within the faith to be able to respond the way we're supposed to to respond. That's the meaning of when someone slaps you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. I'm not changing my demeanor or my response based on what they did. I'm basing it on what the Lord has told me to do. So that's where I think we're supposed to go with the idea of having peace in our commitment to God's commandments and not being knocked off of our game by the circumstances that are going on around us. That doesn't change the fact that we have an obligation to do the right thing. So the second step after we're offended is exercising good judgment, right? So I know, Matthew 7, judge not, you know, lest you be judged. Okay, so there's that. But in 1 Corinthians, there is, and this is chapter 2, verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. So how is the idea, you know, you can't judge, but you're supposed to judge. What, you know, what's going on here? Well, obviously, we're supposed to practice discernment, and we're supposed to judge. We're supposed to determine whether a person is an adequate spiritual leader or not, for instance. We're supposed to measure them by their fruits in Matthew 7. So how a person is judged is affected And we can like this or not like it, but it's a reality, and it makes sense, and it is in Scripture. It's present. How a person is judged is affected by their standing in the community, by their maturity, their credits earned, so so to speak. And I mean that in two senses. It's a matter of fact, whether we like it or not. That's just a reality. Well, you know, I've known him for 30 years. I don't believe he would do that. We say that kind of thing. I know. I know the trouble that leads to. I'm not ignoring that. I'm just planting the, you know, just getting the soil prepared for what we're supposed to talk about here. So matter-of-factly, we do that. We give credits to people for how long we've known them and by their standing in the community. There is something reasonable about that, despite the problems it brings to the culture, which, and, and this, is, this is also on the right side. We, we value equality, We say no one is accepted, and they shouldn't be accepted because we value equality. So there is something reasonable about giving person credit for their standing in the community while at the same time acknowledging that there should be an equality before the law, right? And those are not mutually exclusive either. 
Because what we're not saying is that no one has authority in a spiritual leader's life or in, you know, in any authority's life. What it is saying is that Christian leaders have a more stringent and powerful judge and therefore a more stringent standard to meet, which also applies when people are judging them. So it's, it's kind of like the law. You know, being free, being in Christ, doesn't mean you can now violate the law. You have no accountability whatsoever. It doesn't mean that. It means that when our living is a product of the Holy Spirit, there are no laws against what we do. We're fulfilling the law and more because we're being led by the Spirit. And so when we're mature in Christ in a parallel way, we don't need to be judged by others, but we can't dismiss accusations that are based on our maturity or authority, an accusation with merit. And so, for instance, the statement in 1 Timothy 5.19, don't don't bring an accusation against an elder except with two or three witnesses. That statement doesn't mean the accusation doesn't have validity if there are not two or three witnesses, but it does mean that you have to give merit to accusations when, in the context of where this person is standing in the culture and the community is, and when everybody else would say, well, I just don't believe John would do that. You know, I've known him for 30 years. Well, I know, I get that. And here's this new guy that's shown up and making this accusation. He's not the only one saying it. And I think we're going to have to look into this. You can see the practical reality that that's what happens, right? And so that's what 1 Timothy 5 is describing. If, if, if we don't do it, and by the way, when those accusations that have merit come in, what they are, what they serve as is, you know, uh, information that helps us recognize our failure to live according to the maturity that we claimed that we had. That means there needs to be accountability and judgment. And so I would go through the rest of this. You can look at 1 Corinthians 4. Paul carries it forward talking about how he himself doesn't need to be judged by others because he is uh, under Christ and Christ is judging him. And yet in 1 Corinthians 5, he's exercising judgment and saying, you guys have been too defensive of this person who needs to be brought to judgment. There is a right place for us to step in and say, hey, somebody's got to hold you accountable for this. We have to exercise judgment at this point. And it doesn't matter who you are, how high you are. Remember, Paul does it with Peter. He describes it in the book of Galatians when he's willing to correct him in that way. So the point here is that in Christianity, there is a place for pronouncing judgment on offenders. In a practical sense, it, it, it has to be done since not everyone behaves responsibly. You know, so we have the Spirit, so we ought to behave responsibly, but one epistle after the other in the New Testament proves that we don't. You have the Holy Spirit, and why are you acting like this? That's basically every epistle says that. Hey, you guys, love you. Why are you acting like this? Stop it. Make things right. See you soon. That's pretty much every epistle in the New Testament. The judgment practiced between believers provides social accountability where personal responsibility is lacking. Got it? Social responsibility, accountability, where personal responsibility is lacking. It's one of the forms of bearing one another's burdens. And unfortunately, it can also be exercised irresponsibly, obviously, and it can become this sort of self-righteous irresponsibility itself. 
Well, if you dress correctly for church, if you would just have a worship service on Christmas Day, you pagan, you could be righteous. I mean, you know, we can do self-righteous impositions of judgment on other people that have nothing to do with biblical accountability or with just maturity in our walk. But we also need to exercise judgment in the ways that uh, help believers live out what they're supposed to be doing. So also for believers, this is how we pursue God's righteousness. Uh, and, and that righteousness begins with peace. You know what I'm talking about. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. When you read in Proverbs about the things the Lord hates, four out of the seven things the Lord hates are these divisive offenses that are created by people, shedding innocent blood, devising wicked plans, a false witness, sowing discord among brethren. Those things merit judgment. Someone saying, hey, you're doing this, and you need to stop doing this. Um, you know, I could go on with details, the, 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 the four pastors who responded to Johnny Hunt's, uh, you know, uh, uh, accusations and, and said it's time for him to be restored, describing Johnny Hunt as if he's the, the, Samarit, the, the victim on the Jericho Road, right? And, you know, this, my point here is, we can't just say, I'm a peacemaker, and I practice love and mercy because I overlook everyone's faults. That doesn't make you a peacemaker or committed to love and mercy. Seeing the abuses that are committed by someone and recognizing those who have been abused as needing someone to stand up for them is equally important in exercising mercy and righteousness in terms of peace. So we have to stop thinking of only one side as these events are unfolding, and that's part of the lesson of the Me Too movement, that we needed to hear those who had been, who have survived abuse. So, and I've said this many times, I'll say it real quickly here again, but because survivors' voices have been marginalized for so long, we have to lend credibility to every account simply to overcome our former and unfortunately residual intransigence to their words. Then when we've done that, we provide the best achievable adjudication of each case based on the merits of that case. But first, you have to hear the accusations, and we have to give ourselves more to that. So that's on the idea of just us being willing to exercise judgment. So these are the things that were that are contained in the idea of us exercising judgment within the community that we have. After judgment comes the question of forgiveness. What are we supposed to do in cases of forgiveness? And, you know, I mean, to what extent does that go? So first, in forgiving, we have to remember that there is a place for accountability. And conversely, by the way, dealing with the offender, there's a place for confession. There's a place for contrition. Well, you owe me forgiveness. Eh, that's not confession or contrition, right? So there also has to be a place, knowing that there's a place for accountability and confession and contrition, there also has to be a place for readmission in some way to the community. Again, to the extent of that is what we're going to get to in the next part of the conversation. So hang with me. But, you know, this is the part, the readmission to the community is the part of what's happening with Zacchaeus, as I mentioned in the previous episode, when Jesus says of him, he also is a son of Abraham. He's saying he's one of us. He's part of the community again. And this is from a person who betrayed them in the worst possible way. Go back and listen to the 
previous episode to, to talk about Zacchaeus. So there's the idea of forgiveness being built into what we have to have in consideration if we're going to practice judgment. But what does that mean? So for instance, let's take the idea of forgetting because everybody wants to ask this question first. You know, Well, if I forgive, does that mean I have to forget? I make that sound like it's a dumb question. It's not a dumb question. It's a huge question. It's an important question. But forgive, forgiveness does entail forgetting, but not in the way you're thinking. Forgiveness is forgetting is not intellectual. It's volitional. And, and the example I use for that, the, the super simple example for that is just God's forgetting. You know, casting uh, our sins into the sea of forgetfulness or your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. And yet he's omniscient. He knows everything from the beginning to the end. So obviously it's not an intellectual issue. The point is not that he can't remember our sins. You know, he did something one time, and I just can't remember what it is. Do you, do you remember, son? That's, that's not a rational description of a conversation the Trinity would have. His, the point isn't that he can't remember sins. Oh, if I could just remember. But that he chooses not to hold them over the formerly guilty. He chooses not to bring them to the front of his mind and act on those things, but instead on other things. Forgetting in an intellectual sense is a non-starter as an explanation also for us, not because we're omniscient, but because of how forgiveness is described in Scripture. Every year's feasts in the Old Testament in Israel, every Good Friday in Christianity, Every communion over the body and blood of Jesus, reminding us of his death, is a reminder of the cost involved in forgiveness, which means we're remembering. Even Paul describing his own sins in, before he was converted. What a, what a confused state we would have to be in if we could not remember intellectually what the Messiah's sacrifice erases volitionally. So, of course, we remember the sin of the forgiven. We just choose not to hang it over their head anymore. That's what forgetting means in forgiveness. Regarding the other side, you know, for whom forgiveness is most important. So, what I mean by this is, people will say, I'm not forgiving for you. I'm forgiving for my sake. You know, so I'm, I'm forgiving you. And, and, and the perpetrator says, thank you. And they say, well, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. I get that. I understand that. It's true in this sense that forgiveness does benefit the forgiver. There's no doubt about that. Reading Scripture makes it clear. The the nature of our existence in the world makes this clear. That's the kind of person we're supposed to be. And so forgiveness brings us closer in line with what we're supposed to be, not just what we happen to be. Not to be a forgiving person is not to be like our Father in heaven. He commands us to be perfect and then describes his willingness to care about his enemies. And in Matthew 6, it states it explicitly. If you do not forgive those who sin against you, your Father in heaven will not forgive you your trespasses against him and vice versa, so on. So there's no doubt that it's for our benefit. But the, the idea that forgiveness is for us and not for the perpetrator is also false. Forgiveness is not just some kind of relational, egoistic expressionism. Yeah, I threw my forgiveness on the canvas and produced a Jackson Pollock, but I don't care what it means to you. That's not what it is. Uh, Forgiveness communicates a new standing to an offender. 
It doesn't have to communicate, hey, nothing you did was important. Your violation didn't matter. Your abuses, uh, they don't have any ongoing consequences. It doesn't have to communicate any of that. But it does say to the perpetrator, you have a different standing now than you had while you were committing that offense or before we had started to deal with it. You have a new standing now. That's part of what's built into forgiving. Okay, so there's the idea of forgiving. And then there's the idea, and these ideas are built into forgiveness as well, the idea of reconciling. So we know reconciling is important in some way. Implicitly, we know it from the testimony of Paul, reconciling with Barnabas, and we hear about it all the time. But on the grandest of all levels, I mean, the grand narrative of creation is the work God undertakes to reconcile humanity and creation to each other and to himself. That's the great mystery of Ephesians 2 and 3, even in the New Testament. It is the story. It's not a minor thing for us to imitate in our existence in this life. So what does it mean? That's the, that's the challenge. And what it means becomes most complex, as I try to abbreviate this part of the conversation, becomes most complex on the question of restoration. I'm just taking a few more minutes. Hang with me. The question of restoration. So, you know, what do we restore someone? Yes, of course you restore someone in this sense. Because we recognize that both of us, the offender and those of us who were offended, because I'm speaking from that perspective today, we're, you know, we're in the same standing before God and within some sense of the community of God. So we have to deal with that reality that we're all in this thing together. But no, in this sense, that it somehow requires living under the same roof or in the same classroom or in the same church house or in the same home or in the same business. It does not require restoring the power differential of the relationship which resulted in the harm to begin with. There's nothing that would require that. You can be restored as sharing the community of Christ, sharing the forgiveness and mercy of Christ, without restoring the power differential that created the original harm. That's not built into Christianity. You don't have to do that. And so, no, in this sense, there is a line of difference. There is an important line of difference. It is, on one hand, obvious, an enormous difference. And on the other hand, a very fine and almost invisible line between mercy and enabling. You know, I, I, we have to exercise mercy, absolutely. Are you just enabling a person to continue in their sin? Are you just enabling a person to continue in their abuses? Now, I'm, and again, I'm saying it is, in one sense, obvious what the difference is. And in another sense, it can become really confusing. Caring about someone, regardless of the harm they've done, is mercy. That's good. Acting in the interest of a soul, regardless of what they deserve, is mercy. On the other hand, setting someone up to fail in the same way again, especially when it harms others in the process, that's enabling. Mercy and enabling are different. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, they are not mutually exclusive. One doesn't have to lead to the other. Mercy doesn't mean enabling. 
We can exercise mercy without enabling a person. But they can happen at the same time. Mercy can motivate us to enable a person. So mercy is qualified. It has to be applied with discretion. James does it. Mercy overcomes judgment, but he'll have judgment without mercy who has shown no mercy. Mercy is qualified. In Christianity, mercy is qualified. And so we do that. So, so let, me, let me wrap this up. And again, the conversation was not to say to you, here's how you solve the problem when someone's offended you, and you just fix it. You just take these three steps, and you're done. I, I, I know we haven't done that, but hopefully we've given you enough that you can say, well, I'm going to take these things into consideration as I think about it and these, these differences. So let me give you this in terms of quick takeaways, just quick takeaways. But I would encourage you to, if you need more detail on it, go back and listen to the episodes. Again, I know the, the idea of listening to my voice twice in a row on the same topic, I can't even fathom. But honestly, the topic is so important. If we're going to be peacemakers, this is where it happens. It doesn't happen when there's already peace. You don't need a peacemaker if you already have peace. You're just having peace. This is where we apply peace. So number one, quick takeaways. Number one, remember that the goal is peace with God and with humanity. We want peace with God. We want peace with humanity for us and for others. If righteousness doesn't end in love, then something's wrong. Again, I'm not pretending that's simple. Oh, we just... We just love everybody, and yeah, he's a serial abuser, but we just love him, and everything's okay. I'm not saying it's simple, but it's also not to be reversed. It's not to be controverted. So don't evaluate the legitimacy of your love based on whether your moralism is satisfied. This would be reversing the importance of love when you're dealing with righteousness. That is, let let me say it this way, to be pointed. I could do a whole episode on this one too, though. Tough love isn't a thing. In a good sense, I know, everybody says, tough love. He's exercising tough love. Okay, I get it, and I understand how you can use that phrase. But in a good sense, this is what ought to be in our understanding. Justice is what makes us tough with someone. Love is what makes that justice painful. So does love have to be resilient enough that we can continue to love, continue to be empathetic, continue to care about the person, even when it's time for us to exercise some judgment on them. Yes, but the judgment isn't the love. So just to be clear, we can have it at the same time, but it's not the same thing. Because I have heard that used as an excuse for so many decades to justify treating people with disdain and saying, well, you can't love them if you don't tell them the truth. Maintain the distinction between the two. That's all I'm saying. Our ideal, the thing we're trying to achieve, is that we be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just like Christ forgave us, right, from Ephesians? You know who wrote that? A man who was rejected by the church even after his repentance, after his miraculous conversion, because he had killed their friends and family within the church, and then was received by them and accepted by them and forgiven. He had killed their families and they found a way to forgive him. So remember, the goal is peace. That's number one. Number two, though, that ideal of peace, that goal, does not eliminate the complexity of what remains. The New Testament is not a single sentence. Forgive and forget, and all will be well. That's it. Done. Old Testament complete now. 
That's not the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with the complexity of what remains in how we live out what we're called to be in Christ. So we don't need to apologize for that. That's number two. Number three, remember the layers that are affected when an offense or a harm or an abuse occurs. The layers. A person needs to be reformed. Another person to whom there is another person in in the equation to whom justice ought to be restored. And then there is a society and a God which requires judgment or satisfaction. All three of those ought to be taken into consideration, and sometimes independently, as we start to deal with this this issue of forgiveness and even redemption. And then finally, remember that all the people involved, when you become the means of implementing some of these elements of forgiveness, judgment, forgiveness, reconciliation, all those things, that all the people involved, when you become the means of implementing these elements of forgiveness, all of them ought to be considered. Because if we keep love for all of those people in mind, then we can use even the opportunities where we wield all the power in order to become what Christ became for us, servants of all. When we have power, that's when we choose to be servants. So may 2023 be a year of serving faithfully even those to whom our eyes and ears have been shut in the past, especially those who have been overcome, who now survive the traumas that have happened to them. May 2023 make us more like Christ. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.